you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In a favourable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favourable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labours, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honour and dishonour, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. It's funny, I have this fear when I preach. It's not about preaching. My fear is that my mic's on during the opening songs. And you guys hear me sing. I don't possess the skill of my wife, Amelia, who, um, who led this morning. But thanks be to God that wasn't the case. You didn't hear me sing. Uh, and thanks be to God for the book of 2 Corinthians, who's enjoying our series through it. Yeah, it's been great to spend some time in Paul's letter to this church in Corinth. I want to begin uh, by sharing the story of the man up on the screen. Anyone know who that guy is? No one? <laughs> A few people. His name is Joshua Harris, and he rose to to prominence in the evangelical church world uh, back in 1997 when he authored a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Anyone familiar with that book? Yeah, it was very popular, pretty controversial. 
All right, but the story of Joshua Harris is unfortunately quite a tragic one. Uh, in 2019, he uh, announced on his Instagram page that he had left the faith, that he had departed from Jesus. A few days earlier, he had announced that he and his wife uh, were divorcing and uh, many of his followers were left kind of questioning where that left him spiritually, well, where did that leave him with the gospel? And so in response to that, he, he jumped back on his Instagram and he answered those questions directly and he uh, left he brought some clarity and he explained that, yeah, I have left the faith. I want to read to you one of the paragraphs that he had in that post. He says this, The information that was left out of our announcement in reference to the divorce post is that I've undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian... I am not a Christian. Many people tell me that there is a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I'm not there now. His story is tragic, and his story uh, leads, uh, leads us to think, uh, to ask a lot of questions. You know, how can this, this pastor, this person who was living for Jesus and speaking for Jesus and, and seemingly passionate for him, kind of lose the faith and, and, and lose his way spiritually? Uh, and for many, it seemed to come out of the blue. All of a sudden, he's gone from loving and living for Jesus to now rejecting him in this Instagram post. But for those who were close to him, those who knew him, this wasn't out of the blue. This was not a sudden process, but rather, for quite some time, he'd been on a path, a path taking him further and further away from Christ and further and further into the culture. He was becoming less and less aligned with the commands of Christ and more and more aligned with that of the culture. Albert Moeller, a Christian writer and commentator in the States, when reflecting on the story of Joshua Harris a few days after all this, uh, says this. Many people have obviously wondered, how did this come out of the blue? But it didn't really come out of the blue. There had been troubling signs for some time indicating that Joshua Harris was in a very significant worldview and spiritual transition, a transition away from Christ and towards the culture, a transition of worldview. This didn't happen suddenly, rather there was a journey, there was a path, a trajectory that Joshua Harris was on. And I share that at the beginning of uh, the sermon this morning on chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians, because the Corinthians find themselves on a similar path. All right? They haven't quite abandoned their faith, they haven't rejected Jesus, but yet the Apostle Paul has received word that is worrying, that they are on this path, a path that has made them question the authority, the truthfulness of the gospel. Paul has received worrying word that these Corinthians are, their commitment to holiness is beginning to slide. And Paul is worried for them. He is concerned. And we know the Apostle Paul is a man of giant intellect. He's a, he's a clever man. We see that in his letters. But his giant intellect is matched by a giant heart. He cares deeply about the souls of those in this church at Corinth that he planted, that he, he instructed and taught for, for 18 months. And he's not apathetic about these concerns, this kind of trajectory that these Corinthians are on, but rather in love, he writes, he appeals, he urges these Corinthians to come back to the gospel, to stick with Jesus, to not lose the spiritual plot. And this chapter is a, is a real gift from the Lord to us. 
to, to encourage us. Because none of us are immune from the temptation of kind of drifting down this path closer and closer towards the culture and, and drifting away from Jesus. Perhaps the, the gospel and, and the Lord Jesus was once at the center of your life, but you know, distractions and doubts and other things, we begin to kind of, it shifts to the margins. And so this morning, this chapter is a real gift to us as the Apostle Paul speaks from the heart and, and urges, appeals these Corinthians to not lose their way, to not lose the spiritual plot, but to commit and stick with Jesus. So we pray and we're going to get stuck into our passage this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. It is living and breathing. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing to the vision of soul and spirit, discerning the thoughts and intentions of our heart. Lord, we pray this morning that by the power of your spirit, your word would do its work. May you sharpen our minds, would you strengthen our wills, would you soften our hearts. Make us more like Jesus, strengthen our faith, we pray. In his name we do. Amen. So chapter 6 is essentially Paul urging, Paul appealing to these Corinthians who are on this dangerous path. And by the end of this chapter, he wants them to have done two things. He wants them to recommit to the true gospel, number one. Number two, he wants them to recommit to holiness. That's the basic outline of this chapter. First kind of 12 verses, recommit to the true gospel. Second 12 verses, however many it is, recommit to holiness. That's the two points we'll be going through this morning. And so let's pick it up in verse 1. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. He's worried about the trajectory they're on. He's worried about these Corinthians, that if they continue down the path they're on, then the grace of God that they had received might amount to nothing. Now, when we first read this verse, or at least when I first read this verse, my first question is, well, if someone is genuinely saved, someone's genuinely, uh, genuinely a Christian, how can they lose their faith? How can they lose their salvation? And it's important to note that Paul is confident that although these Corinthians are wondering a little bit, he's confident in the genuineness of their salvation. He's confident that their faith is legitimate and that they will return, they will repent. Now, there's good reason to believe that once God saves someone, that they are always saved. We refer to this as the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Now, this is not Paul's primary intent here to kind of give biblical justification as to, to why that is the case. All right, but in Philippians, he makes it pretty clear that what God begins, he will bring to completion. But the important thing to see here is even though Paul is confident that their salvation is genuine, that doesn't stop him from giving a serious warning. All right, our doctrine of the perseverance of saints, if it means that when we see a, a brother or sister in spiritual danger, that we kind of sit back and be apathetic, then we've lost our way. All right, rather... He's confident, yes, in their salvation, but he wants them to feel the weight of this warning. He wants them to feel the danger, the peril that they're in if they continue down this path, unless they have received the grace of God in vain. Now, we have to ask the question, what's actually going on here? What's the context? Why are these Corinthians at risk of receiving the grace of God in vain? So we have to remember that the Apostle Paul, he planted this church in Corinth. Okay? He, he, he remained there for 18 months, teaching, preaching. You know, Sunday by Sunday, the Apostle Paul was their preacher. Imagine that. Welcome up. We've got the Apostle Paul this morning. <laughs> it's not too bad, right? So he's instructing. He's, he's teaching these guys. But then he, uh, he leaves. He departs. He's at this point in Ephesus. All right? He's building the church there in Ephesus. And there are some new preachers in town. New preachers preaching in the churches in Corinth. 
Now, Paul refers to these preachers in chapter 11 as super apostles. It's unclear if that's what they call themselves or if that's what Paul kind of calls them tongue-in-cheek. But what is clear is that they are false apostles. They might claim to be super apostles, but they're actually false apostles. Now, who are these apostles? Well, uh, Gary Miller in his commentary in 2 Corinthians says that they're a bit of a mix. They're, they're part Christian. There's something Christian about them. There's some sort of loose agreement with, with, with something of the Christian message. All right? They're also part Jewish. There's some Jewish heritage to these apostles, these, these teachers. But they're also part Greek. And they also possess uh, the, the, the Greek style of speak, speaking, the, the, uh, the impressive kind of articulation and eloquence. See, the, the Greeks prize not just speaking to uh, inform, all right, but to entertain. And so there are these, these false apostles uh, in the church, and Paul says, hey, don't be hoodwinked by these guys. They're not preaching the same Jesus, the same gospel. No, it's a different spirit, a different gospel, a different Jesus. And my first thought is, well, how did these guys go from sitting under the apostle Paul, the apostle Paul, being instructed in the gospel, to now kind of being drawn away by these false apostles with, with a false gospel? See, the false apostles are quite clever in their approach. What they first do, before they undermine the gospel and change that, they first attack Paul's authority as an apostle. They question his ministry and his integrity. Because they know if they can get the Corinthians doubting the apostle Paul, then they might start to doubt the message that he brought, the gospel. And that's why this is a big deal for Paul. We say, why is he defending his ministry all the time? Why is he commending himself? Because he knows as an apostle of the Lord Jesus... If his authority is attacked, all right, and if the church, these Corinthians, begin to doubt him, then soon they'll begin to doubt the gospel. And so he takes this very seriously. He begins by saying to them, hey, don't be hoodwinked by these part Christian, part Jewish, part Greek apostles. They might call themselves super apostles, but they are false apostles. They're preaching a different gospel. Verse 2, he says this, For he says, in a favorable time, I listen to you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. He takes them back to a quote from Isaiah 49. In this uh, this verse, it speaks of the servant of the Lord, whom the Lord hears, whom the Lord helps to achieve his mission. Uh, We know from chapter 52 and 53 in Isaiah that this servant of the Lord is actually the suffering servant. And what Paul is saying here, that this prophesied favorable time, this prophesied day of salvation, it's pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of this great prophecy. In Jesus and in the gospel, this favorable time, this day of salvation has come. That's why he says now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. He's saying, hey, look, this is the gospel age. This is not the time to be hoodwinked by those who would meddle with the gospel. There is no other gospel. There's no gospel 2.0 coming. It says, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. This is the true gospel, that which you have received. He begins by saying from the get-go, hey, there is no other gospel. What I brought to you, this is the true gospel. Now, verse 3 to verse 10, he begins to address the, the critique on his ministry. Again, remember, these false apostles are trying to get an in into the church and creating doubt in these Corinthians by attacking Paul and saying, are you sure this guy's the real deal? Can you really trust his authority as an apostle? And therefore, can you trust the message that he brought? Verse 3, he 
He says, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no one, no fault, sorry, may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. When I was a relatively new Christian, sort of first year uni, I came across this uh, little saying, you've probably heard it, preach the gospel every day, if necessary, use words. Who's heard that? Heard that, I was like, man, that's brilliant. Posted on my Facebook, and then I had this guy from, I was part of a Christian group, and like very quickly messaged me and said, that's stupid, what are you doing? Why would you post that? And I was a bit kind of, well, ajarred by it, but he was absolutely right. I mean, it's a bit of a contradiction of terms, that, that quote, right? Because what's the gospel? It's news that has to be heralded, has to be proclaimed, and so if you keep your mouth shut, how will the gospel actually be proclaimed? All right, and so... That's actually not a true statement. But what the Apostle Paul is saying here is a bit of a helpful balance. That the lives we live do matter. Uh, Paul says that our lives are to adorn the gospel, that the, the manner of our lives ought to be worthy to the calling of the gospel. It's an important point to hold on to. We, we don't say, well, you know, to, to glorify grace more and more, if I'm just like sinning really badly, then my evangelism will be even better. All right, that's, that doesn't fly. The Apostle Paul makes it clear that our lives are meant to be a help, not a hindrance to the gospel message we proclaim. The lives we live influence how the message we preach is received. Does this mean we have to have a perfect life for anyone to become a Christian? Well, if that's the case, no one's getting converted through evangelism, right? Because none of us have reached that perfection. The point is, when we speak of the, the grace of God and the gospel, it's the grace that saves, it's the grace that transforms us. The point is that our lives support the fact that there's this transforming power of the gospel at work in us. It's not perfection, perfection, but there's progress. Our lives support the message we preach. And that was the case for the Apostle Paul. So we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. We have many motivations for holy living. Here's one. To not put a stumbling block in anyone's way to receive the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Verse 4, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. So his ministry has been attacked. Now he says, no, 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 we put no obstacle in anyone's way. In fact, we commend ourselves as servants of God. And the question is, how will he commend himself to these Corinthians? How will he win back their trust? What will he point to? Now remember the Apostle Paul, right? As an apostle in the early church kind of era, God would often verify their authenticity as apostles by working great deeds and great miracles. And think of Paul's handkerchief having enough power to kind of heal someone. There's great miracles that God worked through the Apostle Paul. I mean, if I'm the Apostle Paul, maybe I might start there. Hey, you're questioning my authority as an apostle. You remember the miracles that God's worked through me? But surprisingly, Paul doesn't go there. He said in chapter 5 that he won't commend himself on outward appearances like the super apostles do, who are obsessed with you know, external acts of impressiveness, but rather from the heart. And see where he goes in verse chapter Sorry, in verse 4. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. See, the super apostle was saying, if Paul was legit, if he was actually an apostle, surely he wouldn't suffer as much as he has. Is God really with him? Couldn't you really trust him? And Paul plays a genius move here. He goes... The argument that's leveled against me, that my sufferings disqualify me, you've got it completely wrong. My sufferings actually 
should prove to you, verify to you that I am an apostle, that I'm authentic, that I'm the real deal. Why? Because in the midst of all of these sufferings, I have endured. True gospel ministry, a true Christian minister, a true Christian for that matter, it's not the absence of trials and hardships and suffering, but rather it is endurance in the face of trials, in the face of sufferings. It's a really important point to get here because the Corinthians were kind of almost blindsided by their culture to think you know, they, they prize kind of success and external outward appearance of success and suffering doesn't look like you're succeeding. Okay? But God says, no, no, you're getting it wrong. What matters is that you endure in the face of trials. And the Apostle Paul is saying, you've had ample evidence to see kind of what I'm made of. Suffering is a way of showing forth what's in someone's heart. He says, I've been through it all. We saw the long list there. And yet I've endured. I've remained faithful. So, well, how did did he do it? I mean, when I face trials, I want to be like the Apostle Paul and endure. We know from chapter 4, because the gospel is not just words that he uh, speaks but it's a reality that has dwelt richly in his heart. It has transformed him from the inside out, so much so that these trials are are difficult things. And yet he says in chapter 4, they're light and momentary. Now, he's not dismissing it, but rather what he's saying there is because of the eternal perspective that he has, because of the eternal glory that is to come, because of the gospel, what Jesus has done for him, these things are, relative to that, light and momentary. He says, we commend ourselves in every way, First way, by my endurance in the face of suffering. Second thing he says, again, remind, we've got to remember that the Corinthians, the culture they're in, obsessed with outward appearance of success, giftedness, impressiveness. And Paul says, hey, there's something more important than giftedness, impressiveness. That's godliness. Verse 6, by purity, knowledge, patience, Kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love by truthful speech and the power of God with weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. See, more important than competency is character. More important than giftedness is godliness. So the Greek philosophers were all show and no substance. Paul doesn't point to his preaching skill. He doesn't point to an external act of impressiveness. He says, no, look at the quality of our life. Look at our character. Look at our godliness. Again, this gospel has transformed us from the inside out. Now, if you read through that list, perhaps you feel crushed. Just how am I going when it comes to purity and, and knowledge and patience and kindness? And it would be wrong of us to read the list and go, okay, well, I need to be better at those things. Because what does Paul say? It's not by his own power. It's by the power of God, he says, by the Holy Spirit. His point, again, the gospel is this work, a power at work within me. It is transforming me from the inside out. We are the real deal. Our message is the real deal. Look at our life. Look at the character, the harvest of righteousness it is bringing forth in us. We commend ourselves in every way by suffering or enduring in suffering uh, and by our godliness, by our character. Now, there is a super important word for us here in the church today. Because we too, in our culture, can really prize the, the external, all right, the outward appearance of giftedness. All right, we too, I mean, these kind of false teachers would have been great speakers, all right, put on a good show, would have been quite impressive with how they could articulate, and they were very eloquent. And Paul's reminding them here, hey, there's something more important than giftedness, it's, it's godliness. There's no point being a great speaker and a great communicator if there's no character to match it. 
Super important in the church, right? When it comes to being, uh, you know, our, our pastors. I want to take a moment here just to honour our two staff pastors, Mike and Zach. All right, we are very blessed to have them um, serving in our church. And obviously last year we went through the lead pastor application process. And I just raised that because what I was more impressed in these two men, more than anything else in the process, wasn't their, their skills, though they were plenty, all right, their giftedness, though that was undoubted. But both of these men, what was more impressive was their character, their godliness. All right? It's not about the show, being up the front. Well, that's clearly a part of the role. All right? we, don't, uh, we care about competency, absolutely. We care about giftedness. God gifts people. But it's character, it's, it's, it's godliness that matters more. You know, what does God say back in 1 Samuel? That man looks on, on the outside, but God looks at the heart. All right, that's where the true power for ministry comes. There's no point being a gifted communicator if the character, the godliness isn't there to match it. And so I'm thankful to both Mike uh, and Zach that, that God has been so at work in their hearts that the words they speak from the front are not just words, uh, but it's a, it's a lived reality. It has transformed them from the inside out, and we see evidence of that in our church. And so praise God for that. Praise God for them. There's also a word for us, though, just in the average Joes like us serving in the church. All right? Again, it can be easy to kind of esteem the... the the roles at church that kind of seem impressive. You know, like speaking at the front, singing from the front. Not if I would do it, but, you know, but these kind of impressive roles. But we have to be careful, like the Corinthians, not kind of just fall into the trap of the culture and, and esteeming something that it's not a bad thing to be up the front and talking and singing and all this kind of stuff. But we best not fall into the trap of prizing that more than godly character. Character matters more than competence. And you know what? There's a danger. It's easy to kind of go about serving for Jesus and not actually have a relationship with Jesus. The Apostle Paul here, like you think he could, he's got a long track record of impressive things the Lord has done through him. But what does he do? He says, we want to commend ourselves to you. Look at our character. Look at how God has transformed us from the inside out. Super important point for us to hear this morning. And in the good times and the bad times, look, he says in verse 8, through honour and dishonour, through slander and praise, in and out of season, godliness matters more than skill and giftedness and everything else. Yes, we want to get more competent. Go to Leaders Lab, get the skills on board. But what matters more is pressing into the Lord, growing in character, growing in godliness. And it's not by our own strength, but that by the power of God through the Holy Spirit. And next Paul says... The gospel gives us an eternal kind of perspective that, that is more important than your earthly circumstances. He said, you Corinthians, if you're just looking at us at an earthly level, you'll miss what's really going on under the surface. Hear what he says. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. He says, you're the standards by which you're judging our life and our ministry, you've kind of become more like the Corinthian culture and you failed to see what's actually going on from God's perspective. So there's a spiritual perspective that truly defines how we're going, not just our earthly circumstances. Because to look at Paul at an earthly level, all right, he's, he's an imposter, he's unknown, he says, he seems to be dying, he's punished, he's sorrowful. He's poor, but that's not the whole picture, is it? Because what the gospel offers, what Christianity offers, 
right, as an identity that is independent of our earthly circumstances. There is joy on offer, there is peace and hope on offer that is independent of whatever earthly circumstance you find yourself in. You too, like the Apostle Paul, might feel like you're dying, your body is wasting away, and yet you're more alive than the most sprightly 22-year-old who is on steroids at the gym. All right? That's, that's Paul saying here. Don't get misguided to only see things from an earthly level. You know, perhaps financially, it's like, I'm poor. You say, I'm poor. He goes, sure, but in Christ, you're actually rich. So there is a spiritual perspective that defines you more than the earthly circumstances that are in your life. And that is a great hope, all right? That's when the Apostle Paul can be sorrowful, yet at the same time rejoicing. He can be punished, all right, but not yet killed. The world ought to look on at us and go, that doesn't really make sense, because the world says you should feel based how you should feel should be the kind of sum of how your life's going, okay, from an earthly perspective. And yet even when our life isn't going to plan, when things don't look the way we hoped they would be, if we are a Christian, all right, if we have received and trusted in the Lord Jesus, then we have every spiritual blessing in him. It's an unbelievable promise. But the same is true on the flip side. From an earthly perspective, you could look like you are absolutely killing it. You've got everything you dreamed of. But spiritually, be poor. Spiritually, have nothing. That's what Jesus says. You can gain the whole world, but forfeit your soul. And what good is that? So there is a word for us here this morning. If you're a Christian who is suffering, a Christian whose life just isn't going the way you want, take heart. Because what's more defining than that is your reality in Christ. If you're here this morning and you aren't a Christian, and you go, I'm killing it. Hear the words of Jesus. What good is it to gain the whole world but lose your soul? And that's what Paul is worried about for these Corinthians, that they would gain things from the world's perspective but lose their soul. He warns them so strongly against that. He says in verse 11, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. Paul is pleading with these Corinthians to see the light, to see that the gospel and the gospel alone is where salvation is found. This is the favorable time. This is the word of salvation. The gospel and the gospel alone gives you the ability to endure in the midst of suffering. The gospel is what can transform you from the inside out and bring about this harvest of righteousness. It's the gospel that can give you joy and peace independent of your earthly circumstances and make you unshakable. Don't Depart from this gospel. Stick to it. Widen your hearts. Trust me, yes, as an apostle, but more importantly, trust the message that I bring. It is God's message. Trust and believe. Recommit to the true gospel. So first thing we see in this section. Now, the second point he makes uh, is to recommit to holiness. Read with me from verse 14. He says this. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Who's heard that verse before? If you've heard like a dating or relationship series kind of go to, or if you've been tempted to date a non-Christian, if you've gone to a friend, a Christian friend, and say, hey, should I date this non-Christian? They'll probably go to this verse, and rightfully so. But what I found interesting as I sort of studied and prepared for this uh, sermon uh, is that verse 14 is not primarily about dating and about marriage. Right? Being unequally yoked with what Paul says here in terms of the immediate application for these Corinthians isn't actually marriage. What it actually is refer- uh, referring to is these false teachers, these super apostles, all right, Paul's saying to them, you're tempted to kind of give these false teachers, these false apostles, a platform, kind of, you know, authority in the church. 
And he says, whoa, 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 these guys are unbelievers. Don't be hoodwinked. Don't give them a position in the church. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That's the primary point Paul's making here. Now, the application of this principle can be broadened out. Absolutely, and we'll get to that in just a second. But first, let's just remind ourselves what, what a yoke even is. Right, we can hear this kind of language and we kind of, it loses its kind of significance because we hear it so often. So a yoke's a pretty simple tool, right? It's a wooden frame okay, that would join two oxen together. All right, so it would join the two oxen together and join the oxen to whatever kind of load it was pulling, often used for, for plowing a field or something. Paul says here is actually coming from 1 Deuteronomy 22, which is a prohibition against unequal yokings. They don't put an ox and a donkey together. And there's an just common sense here. Think about it. You've got a, a, a donkey and an ox, and you put them in a, uh, in a yoke together. They're not going to go the same direction. All right? They're going to be different speeds, different strengths. The, the task won't be complete. And so Paul takes that kind of Old Testament command and applies a spiritual reality to it. He says, be very careful that you unequally yoke yourself with an unbeliever. He goes on to say, well, pose five questions. He says, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Another word for uh, the devil. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Now, what's the answer to all of those questions? Class? No, none. Right, they're like, not a rhetorical question. He's saying, what partnership, what agreement do these two things, they're, they're made of different stuff. At the, at the foundation level, they're different. All right, he's trying to say, you're believers. He's reminding them of who they are in Christ, and these false apostles are not. You're of the light, they're of the dark. You are different. And if you both get into a yoke together and start pushing, you're going in different directions. Things will not go well. That's what it means to be unequally yoked. You haven't got the same outlook. You haven't got the same foundation. You're not moving in the same direction. Things will not go well for you. He warns them against unequally yoking themselves with these false apostles. He says, stick to the gospel. And one way you can do that is by getting rid of these super apostles. Don't give them a platform in your church. Now, this principle, we can broaden out, absolutely. And marriage and dating is one of them. All right? Now, if we ask the question, should I date a non-Christian? Should I marry a non-Christian? Now, there might be some complexities to kind of each individual circumstance there or situation. But the principle is pretty clear. No, you should not be unequally yoked. All right, in chapter 7 of uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul says you should marry in the Lord. Now, even apart from the command nature of this, and we want to obey the Lord, if you think about that analogy of being unequally yoked, it makes perfect sense. All right, if you're yoked with someone, this kind of deep partnership all right, that will influence the kind of moral and spiritual direction of your life, why would you get in a yoke with someone who's got a different foundation, who's pulling in a different direction. When the rubber hits the road, you go in different directions. There's a different foundation. Things will not go well. In marriage, you want to be with someone who understands you at the deepest level. There's that deepest alignment, deepest union. And if you yoke yourself in marriage to someone who is not a Christian, that will not exist. And so, not to, to diminish the kind of individuality of each particular circumstance, but the principle's pretty clear. Do not be unequally yoked. And so the question follows, what about dating then? Well, if we're not going to marry an unbeliever, why date an unbeliever? And evangelism is not the right response, all right? Do not be unequally yoked. First and foremost, by getting rid of these false teachers, but then, yeah, definitely, let's, should marry in the Lord be equally yoked? 
The other thing that often came out in the commentaries I read this week was in the category of friendship. Don't be unequally yoked in friendship. And you hear that and you go, oh, does that mean I shouldn't have non-Christian friends? That would be a bad application of being unequally yoked. You should have non-Christian friends, right? We should be in the world still. Okay, just not of it, Jesus says. But the point here is, when it comes to the people who are most formative in your life, kind of giving you uh, kind of advice that's shaping kind of where your life is heading, who you are, the person giving that you should be equally yoked with. All right? Your deepest kind of friends who give counsel and direction really should be Christians. should be those who, who share the same foundation of the same direction. You're going the same way. Because if you unequally yoke yourself to a friend who's very different to you, the advice you get will probably pull you not towards Christ, but away from him. And so when it comes to false teachers, don't be unequally yoked. When it comes to marriage, do not be unequally yoked. When it comes to friendship, do not be unequally yoked. I want to be sensitive, though, to the people in the room who maybe find themselves in a marriage and you are unequally yoked for whatever reason. Perhaps you weren't Christians when you were married and you've become a Christian, but your husband or wife isn't. Or maybe you married as Christians, but one of you have, have kind of fell away and, and left the faith. And perhaps what I've just said there the last three minutes leaves you feeling very depressed. I want to acknowledge that. And that's a whole sermon in itself, right? And Paul actually speaks to in 1 Corinthians 7 about what you should do in that situation. And just to kind of spoiler alert, you shouldn't get divorced, right? That's not the teaching. It's not that don't be unequally yoked, therefore get divorced. That's not the case. So Paul says, remain in that marriage, okay? Share Christ, preach the gospel, kind of adorn that gospel with the life you live. But I want to just acknowledge that because there is hope. God sees that situation. God has spoken to it directly through the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. It's a sermon in itself, and what I say is unsatisfactory, but I want you just to hear that this morning. Now, the final question that Paul poses, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? It kind of like triggers a thought in him. He goes, oh, temple. I'm going to run with this thought for a little bit. All right, then he says in verse, uh, well, verse 16, For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. Then I will be their God and they shall be my people. As he brings this kind of appeal to a conclusion, all right, he wants to remind them of who they are. He reminds them of the great promises that are theirs in the Lord Jesus. And he begins by saying that we are the temple of God. You might remember in the Old Testament, the temple was the dwelling place between God and man. The presence of God existed in the temple. First it was the tabernacle, but it was more officially built by Solomon, and it was the temple. But the Old Testament writers would look forward to this day when the very presence of God wouldn't be contained in the Holy of Holies and accessed once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, but rather that this, the presence of God, His Holy Spirit, would be given freely to His people. The Old Testament sort of longs for this day. All right? And when Jesus comes, what does He say? Tear down that temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. What He's saying there is that I am the temple. I am the dwelling place, the meeting place between God and man. All right, Christ dies, He's resurrected, the temple is rebuilt, so to say. Okay? He then ascends to heaven, and what does He do? He then sends his Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes to those who trust in him. And so that's why it's now said that we are the temple of God. God now takes up his residence by his Spirit in the hearts of those who believe and trust in Jesus. And so you, if you're a Christian, are the temple of God. We as a church, corporately, are the temple of God. Paul's trying to remind them of the incredible position they are in as these new covenant believers that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit... Right, the third person of the Trinity rested on people at times for appointed tasks, but it wasn't kind of the, the, the normal of, of, a, of a believer in the Old Testament. Okay? But now, 
Because what Christ has done, the veil of the temple has been torn, the Spirit has been now freely given by Christ to his people. It says, I have made my dwelling among them. I will be their God, they shall be my people. This promise in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ. That's what Paul's trying to tell them and remind them. He then continues, verse 17, Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. Now, much is kind of said about this particular verse, but given now we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, the other kind of tension or challenge in the Old Testament is God's people keep on sinning. Right, they're committed to the Lord, we're going to follow the, uh, the covenant, but they don't. And there's this power at work, and the question is like, how are they going to grow in obedience to the Lord? And the ultimate answer is they, they need the Holy Spirit. And Paul's saying, hey, you are now the temple of the Lord. God's Spirit dwells in you. You now have the power to put sin to death. All right, bring no unclean thing, touch no unclean thing. There is this opportunity for, for purity. Not that we're going to nail it, but there's an ability to actually grow in righteousness. Not because we're good or great, but because the Holy Spirit, the power that raised Christ from the dead, is now at work within you if you are a Christian. He reminds them of this. And then verse 18, I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. There is this promise of adoption. As, as sons and daughters, that, the, that God, the King on high, all authority, would treat you as a son, treat you as a daughter, adopt you into his family. That great promise, Paul's reminding the Corinthians, has been fulfilled in Christ. Because what he has done, we now welcomed into, his, into the, to, to God's family. That's a very brief overview of what that Old Testament, those quotations are achieving. But the Apostle Paul is reminding them of who they truly are. In Christ, I once um, read of this story. Who knows uh, Antiques Roadshow? Who's a who knows that show? Yeah, there was a story of this lady who had this ring, all right, in her house, sitting there for years. Okay, and uh, one day, obviously, I don't know how it works. Antiques Roadshow comes to town. She hears about it, and for whatever reason, she takes this ring uh, to to get valued. Turns out, this ring is worth like hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's like a precious jewel, all right? And literally, it changes her life because of <laughs> what this thing is. And it was sitting there all along. There was a sense in which the, the Apostle Paul here is reminding these Corinthians that if you're a Christian, take hold of these great promises that are yours in Christ. You are the temple of God. You have God's Spirit dwelling in you. You've been adopted into His family. Now is not the time to, to question the gospel or question the authority of my apostleship. No, remember what Christ has done for you. And His final urge, His final appeal is this. Since we have these promises that we've just looked at, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Let's call the band up as we uh, bring this to a conclusion. Hear what he says there. Recommit to holiness. He's not saying it's on you to, to, to uh, cleanse your defilement of sin. No, no, you've heard the promises, right? God has acted. God has made us a temple. He has done that himself. But now he says, as those who have been ultimately cleansed from the defilement of sin, put sin to death. Commit to holiness. Commit to the gospel, commit to the Lord Jesus. So we've got to remember here, Paul's appeal to recommit to Jesus. He's saying to them, but remember, Jesus has already committed himself to you, utterly. He has yoked himself to you. If you think about it, all right, Jesus has taken upon himself our sin, 
He's taken upon himself our guilt, the wrath that we deserve. He has so deeply partnered with us, so deeply yoked himself to us, that he would take on the worst of us, the sin, the wrath that we deserve, our unrighteousness. He, he, he takes it upon himself. He partners with us. He goes to the cross. He pays for it. He was without sin. He did not die for his own sin, but for ours. He is so deeply united to us that his death becomes our death and his resurrection becomes our resurrection. Paul is saying, commit yourself to Jesus. He has utterly committed himself to you. He has died for you. He has risen again from the grave for you. He has given his spirit to you. Do not depart from him. Trust in him. Believe in him. Recommit to the true gospel. Yeah, these super apostles might be impressive. Yeah, there's something vaguely Christian about them. But hey, don't be hoodwinked. You've heard, you've received the true gospel. Stick with it. That's where the power is to endure suffering. That's where the power is to be transformed from the inside out. That's where the power is to have joy independent of circumstances. Let's press into holiness, he says. If you think back to the Garden of Eden, what was the sin of Adam and Eve? You know, God said, true life, joy is found inside obedience to me. Here's the command, don't eat from the tree. And what's the lie of the devil? He says, hey, true life, true joy is found not inside obedience to the Lord, but outside of that. He promises everything, and they fall for it. They're hoodwinked. And though the promise is for everything, there's actually nothing. They lose everything. Paul here is saying, inside the commands of God is where joy is found. You have the Holy Spirit now. God is empowering you to live as those who are Christians, live inside the commands of God. That is where joy is found. Stick to the gospel. Recommit to holiness and do it by the power of God, by his Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, uh, this word this morning. And Lord, I pray for those in the room right now who, if uh, we're honest with ourselves, we're not unlike the Corinthians. Yes, we've received the gospel. Yes, we've experienced your power at work in our lives. But the gospel sort of shifted to the margins a little bit. We're, we're doubting kind of the truth of your gospel, we're doubting its authority, where our commitment to holiness is sliding. Lord, I pray for those of us in the room who have that story, Lord. May you be at work powerfully now by your Spirit, convicting us to, to trust in Jesus, to return to him, to make him the center of our lives. For he has yoked himself with us. He has died the death that we deserved and that he has raised, been, been, been raised victoriously. Help us, Lord, to be less like the culture that we find ourselves in. We acknowledge the temptation and the pull, Lord. But may we have the glory of Christ before our eyes, the eyes of our heart. We would see and savor Him. And in doing so, we would not drift away from Christ, but go deeper into Him. That we would stand firm in the gospel. We thank you for these great promises that are fulfilled in the Lord. That we are the temple of you, Lord. We have your Holy Spirit. That you are our Father. May that spur us on this week to holiness, to, to love and good works. Not in our own power or strength, but in the same power that raised Christ from the dead. Here's how we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.